All right, so I got a picture for you right here. Okay, so we have a contest for you for pumpkin killing. What I want you to do, you got to look at these pumpkins, and you're going to make a determination. How many pumpkins are in that pile? We've got like four piles like this. And if you have a phone, you can text it to that number right there. Make sure you put your name on it. If you don't put your name on it, we're not going to know who you are. So put your name on it. What are you going to do? Yeah, you say that. We'll get half of them without names on it. But anyway, so you, you, how many think are there? Put your name on it. If you don't have a smartphone and you're not that savvy, uh, go in the back and they're out in front of the welcome center. There's a little bits of paper and a little jack-o'-lantern head. And you can write a number on that and throw it in there. Put your name on it. And then at pumpkin killing, whoever gets the right number, you get to launch the first pumpkin out of the cannon. We hope it won't backfire. <laughs> I.e., this is guinea pig. Now, what? And if there's a tie, random dry, so you go, or we'll just, you know, let you guys, we'll make a pumpkin octagon. You guys can go. <laughs> it's time. Welcome to Element. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new, we're glad you're here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. They're a little different uh, for this series. They actually look like this. Usually they're full sheets with notes inside, uh, but because of how we're doing this series, these just can be a little bit different. So they're kind of like half sheets folded over, and the questions and stuff are in there. How kind of neat and nifty. Mikey came up with that because he's awesome. Anyway, so... You grab sermon notes. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called YouVersion. Click on Live in YouVersion. Uh, you will get the sermon notes and the verses uh, and all the questions that go along with the message like that. So I've got a lot to get through today, and I'm just not saying that to be figurative. That is literal. So why don't you guys stay with me for reading God's Word. We will get started here. This is John uh, chapter 21, verse 25, and it says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. For every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we would be a people who stand at the, in just awe of the sheer enormity of what you have done in the course of human history. And I ask today that we would be a people who are humbled by what you have done and that we would walk out of this place more in love with you than we ever have been. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we started a new series today called Jesus. I, too, hope this thing doesn't fall. I will be decapitated very quickly. And you'll have a story you will never forget. I was at this church one time. It's okay. I'll see Jesus face to face. I'm okay. You don't worry about me. I'll be fine. So, you know, just your kids will be scarred forever, but whatever. Anyway, uh, if, if you have uh, been around Element for a while or, or maybe haven't or you're newer, one of the things is we love Christmas. We love Christmas for all it represents. And so our really season of Advent, we started the Jesus series a month and a half before December, but it's all eventually going to tie together all at Christmas. And so we're doing this series on Jesus. And again, I know you think we talk about Jesus all the time anyway. But this is going to be different. If you know someone who's been struggling with faith in Jesus, maybe asking questions, this is going to be a perfect series for them and probably you, as you will get a much deeper and bigger picture about who he is. Uh, This is going again to be different. I'm going to tag team this. Every other week, you will have somebody up here. I'm going to be switching off with elders and deacons and GC leaders. It's going to go me and somebody else, me and somebody else, me and somebody else, all the way through the first of the year. On Christmas Eve, we're going to bring a lot of this together. You might even hear some of the things I talk about this morning on Christmas Eve. And the reason that we do this is we want you to see the wide brush of who Jesus is, not just that he is truth, but also of his person. 
And so I've asked all these people to come and share with you the things about Jesus that inspire them, that humble them, all of these things. And to some, it's Jesus' stand on truth or that he was the truth. For some, it's his mercy. To others, it is his character. And the list could go on and on forever and ever. And I want this to expand your horizons. And if you are not a believer, we pray that by the end of this, you would embrace Jesus Christ with all of your heart and life and you would surrender everything to him. I'm going to start today with a quote from a Yale historian. His name's Jaroslav Polikin. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but I don't know how in the world you say his name. His teachers must have hated it. But this is what he wrote. He says, Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, some sort of supermagnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Now, this is the idea that we all live in such a self-absorbed world. We're always thinking about ourselves. And even when we think about Jesus, it's, well, how is Jesus part of my little life and my little world and my little church? We don't really stand back and recognize the scope and the sheer awe-inspiring enormity of his impact on the world. Now, Walt Disney's daughter wrote a biography about her dad. She talks about how when she was a little girl, she didn't really know who her dad was, if, if that makes sense, until she was about six years old and she's in school. And these other little kids are going, well, you know Mickey Mouse and Disney land and the magic kingdom all that stuff that's your dad and so she goes home and she goes dad how come you never told me you're walt disney <laughs> now it's kind of like that with jesus so we're going to stand back and get a big look about who he is and we got to forget about ourselves and so today's message is not going to be about my life or your life what i want to do is simply overwhelm you with what god has done and shaped history through the person of christ in amazing ways you're going to get information overload this morning i try not to do this that much but today i'm actually doing it on purpose and if you're a little restless or a little add this is the holiday sunday just for you okay because i'm going to just throw stuff at you now i'm going to start again by naming the obvious and that it'd be hard to choose a less likely candidate in human terms to change the world than jesus he was not a political figure. He had no connections with Herod, the Sanhedrin, or Rome. He led no military action. He never wrote a book. He never really traveled more than 30 miles from where he was born. His followers are relatively uneducated and ridiculously unimportant people, just like you and me, just like that. The New Testament records them as being unschooled, ordinary men. But it's said that they remarked that they had been with Jesus, and that's what made all the difference. 2,000 years later, it is virtually impossible to imagine our world apart from Jesus' imprint upon it. I mean, try to imagine the world without its most influential movement, which we would call the church. And there are some very cynical people out there today. I know we're like, oh, the church is horrible. The church has done some amazing things throughout the course of history. Imagine no Notre Dame or no St. Paul's Cathedral, no storefront church in Watts, no church houses in China, no element. Maybe like, oh, that would be good. Then nothing would fall and hit somebody's head and we'd all be alive. But, you know, great. Uh, but you got to think about the people, too. No Peter, no Paul, no Timothy, no Augustine, no Thomas Aquinas, no Francis of Assisi, no Mother Teresa, no Martin Luther, no Martin Luther King, no Dietrich Bonhoeffer, no Joan of Arc, no John Milton, no John Wesley, no John Calvin, no John Bunyan, no John the Baptist. And if you, if you know who he is, no John Warren. He's the chairman of our, of our board, actually. Open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. You have to understand something. In the ancient world, uh, there were nations and families and ethnic groups and guilds and tribal regions and philosophical schools, and the church was none of these things, none of them. 
This is what the Apostle Paul says about the church in Colossians 3, verses 11 to 13. He says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I mentioned Walt Disney just a couple minutes ago. Anybody ever been on the ride, It's a Small World? Anybody want to hit yourself in the head with a hammer by the time you get off? Thank you. They keep singing the song, It Won't Go Away. But you got to think, where did that idea come from? The world gathered together, people of every gender, nationality, status, and they come together like a family. Where before Jesus' movement and the church was there a movement that actively sought to include every single human being, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, status, wealth, gender, moral background, education, to be included and loved and transformed? As a matter of historical fact, not only had there never been a community like this, there never really even been an idea like this. I mean, it starts in the Old Testament, but it comes to fruition in Jesus. Jesus changes how we think about history. Do you know why New Year's Day falls on the day that it does on the calendar? Because of Jesus. In Israel, they would start counting on the day a baby was born. And then on the eighth day, the baby would be brought to the temple. If it was male, it would be circumcised. And then it would cry a lot, because <laughs> it's painful. And then it would be given its name. In December 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, January 1. Boom. First one marks the beginning of a new year. And that's the na- day that the name of Jesus would have come into the world. Every January 1st marks that, whether you know it or not. And it's not just a random fact. It's expressing something that was a new idea throughout human history. And this is the idea of hope. And now we all know that Jesus wasn't born on Christmas Day on December 25th. We, we got that. But it's the day we celebrate it. And that celebration coming through to January 1st changes the world. In our day, we kind of take for granted that we expect progress. We want progress to all take place. Now, we even have these surveys where every year they go and they ask, do you think uh, your life or the people's lives after you are going to be better th- than your life? You know, for the first time in a very long time, people are now saying no again. But, no, you know, nobody in the ancient world would actually ask that question because they didn't think anything would get better. They thought of life as an endless cycle, ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs, seasons come, seasons go. But the followers of Jesus believe that history is a story. That idea begins in Israel, then all the way through Jesus, and it spread around the world that God is leading history somewhere. And you see that's part of the worldview that gave rise to science even being possible. It meant that people could face the future with hope. Now, we love to call this, again, progress. We take for granted the notion that time should bring progress, but that is an idea the ancient world never shared. It came from Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, he tells us about when Jesus was born. In Luke 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. That is a really clumsy way to date something, wouldn't you say? Imagine if you had to do that day, be like, I don't know. You say, well, why didn't he just say what year he was, Jesus was born in? Well, in the region where, where Luke was in Jesus' day, the, the events would be dated by the emperor and then by local governors, so you knew what time and place everything took place. And so you had the year reign of Augustus and so on and all that. Over time, the power of every Caesar began to fade and fall. Their grip on human imagination goes away. While the vision of this man, Jesus, crucified, unknown carpenter, just keeps growing and growing. By the 6th century, almost 600 years after Jesus, a Scythian monk living in Rome proposed a new standard for reckoning history. Now his name was Dionysus Exiguus. In in Latin, that means little Dennis. But it sounds 
much more impressive in Latin, right, than me just saying little disc. Now, little didn't mean he was short. Little meant that he was humble. Other people have said he was also known as uh, Dionysus Delinquitus, which is Latin for Dennis the Menace. <laughs> Whatever. You've got a good joke in there somewhere. Now, he wasn't known by that, by the way, okay? So don't say that. People are like, you're stupid. Yeah, don't, don't say that. All right. Now, his suggestion was not that the calendar be centered around the, the pagan you know, founding of Rome, but on the incarnation of Jesus, someone who never held an office and never wrote a book. The creation of the calendar as we know it is not just chronological convenience. It's a theological statement that this universe is not an accident. It's not a random cycle, but a story with a storyteller. And its critical event is the entrance into this world of Jesus. I mean, Jesus lived in a tiny little region. Some people say he lived a tiny little life. No Caesar had ever heard a hint of his existence. And yet Jesus is called by his disciple John in the first century, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. Now, in the first century, if you ran into people saying that, that would be laughable, almost like a joke. Lord of Lord and King of Kings, I don't even know who the guy is. And you might even still think it's funny today, but the fact that it remains 2,000 years after the birth of this carpenter, every time any human being anywhere in the planet opens a calendar, unfolds a newspaper, boots up a computer, we are reminded every time that Jesus Christ has become the hinge of human history. He takes Caesars like Nero. Nero tries to wipe out Christianity. Nero dies in the year of our Lord, 68 A.D., Napoleon, emperor of the world, dies in the year of our Lord, 1821. Joseph Stalin wants to wipe out Christianity. The dictator dies in the year of our Lord, 1953. If Jesus was not Lord of Lord and King of Kings, how strange that every ruler who ever reigned, every nation that rises and falls must be dated in reference to the life of Jesus. Now, even today, we're trying to get rid of B.C. and A.D. It's like C.E. common era and B.C.E. before common era. But common to what? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus changes how we arrange our time. Without Jesus, there'd be no Sunday as we know it. Now, the Sabbath was invented by God for the people of Israel. They are the only ancient culture to deliberately give up a day of potential economic gain as a statement of trust in God. And so they took Saturday, the last day of the week, to be that Sabbath. By the end of the first century, Christians had begun to meet on another day, Sunday. This is written about by a Roman writer named Pliny the Younger. You can probably figure out what his dad's name was. Uh, Pliny the Younger said Christians are meeting on the first day. Why the first day of the week? Because it was resurrection day. You know what happens to Sunday? Sunday eventually becomes the entire world's day off. It is amazing. If you look at your calendar today, it doesn't go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. What does your calendar start with? Sunday. Exactly. First day of the week. You get a day off the first day of the week. Tomorrow is actually the second day of the week. It's only, oh, Monday is the first day. No, second day of the week. So treat it better, especially if you're making cars for a living, because apparently we got a Monday car, and I had to take it to the dealership last week. So anyway, there you go. All right. <laughs> anyway, the, the resurrection of Jesus changed how we arrange our time. The whole idea that we call it holidays comes about from the idea of holy days, so we'd remember the life of Jesus. How we got mechanical clocks even. For centuries, there were followers of Jesus in monastic communities, and they oriented their lives around the practice of prayer to Jesus. And these were called, when they had these prayers, they're called the prayer of the hours. In the 13th century, some Benedictine monks created mechanical clocks so they would know when to come together to pray. This is why for centuries, many people didn't own watches or clocks. You would have a church steeple, and in church steeples, they have the bells that would ring. And that's how a lot of people told time, by when the church bells would actually ring. Now, in the 20th century, we started putting clocks on bank signs, so it kind of tells you, you know, who a community worships by who you let tell your time. Now, Jesus shaped how we express compassion. 
I believe all human beings have the capacity for compassion, but Jesus' movement shaped this in ways that most people don't even know about. In ancient Greece and Rome, it was generally the beautiful people and the noble people and the strong who were admired. The rich and the powerful might give money for public works or parks or statues or baths, but they would always carry the rich person's name. It was a way to show their own greatness. Now, with the weak and the marginalized in the classical world were not generally valued. And so there's some parts of the, of the old world that were beautiful and some parts that were just brutal. In the first century, a Roman philosopher named Seneca writes this. He says, we drown children at birth when they are weak and abnormal. That was just part of the world, except in this community of people who followed Jesus. Now, you remember Jesus said in Matthew 19, 14, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so they actually went and they brought in abandoned children, children who didn't even belong to them, and they started to take care of them. Beningus of Dijon in the 3rd century, a follower of Jesus, he has written about, and this is what it says. He nursed, supported, and protected a number of deformed and crippled children that had been saved from death after failed abortions and exposures. So if you weren't able to abort the baby, you just leave it outside and let the elements take it until it just died. And he would go and he would take these kids and bring them in. You know what happened because he did that? He was martyred. He was executed for it. You weren't supposed to save children. Widows were actually by law in Rome fine if you survived your husband. Because if your husband dies, you should die too. It's bad form to outlive your husband in Rome. And so you would get fine. You're a drag on the economy. But there's this group of people who follow Jesus. And then remember, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looks at his mom in John 19, 26 and says, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And so they started taking care of widows and orphans, both. I was watching a TV show last week, and somebody accidentally shot like a kid. This TV show, and everybody's like, they were horrified. Oh, the poor kid. Do you know that before Jesus, that idea would have not offended anybody? Because children were considered worthless. It is because of Jesus that we view women and children with the dignity and worth that we do today. Sociologist Rodney Stark says one of the main reasons for the expansion of the church came because of two major epidemics that destroyed a fourth and a third of whole populations. Because when people got sick, you would take that sick person, you'd throw them into the street out of your home so you didn't get sick and you didn't die. The Christians would come along and they would take these people thrown out into the streets, people they weren't even related to. They would bring them into their homes. They would care for those people at risk to their own health because of Jesus who cared for people with leprosy and the blind and the deaf and the lame. And in the 4th century, essentially the first hospital for prolonged care was developed by a follower of Jesus named St. Benedict. And then in the 6th centuries, monasteries would commonly have hospitals attached to them for that same ministry. Over time, this idea of compassion, that it should be expressed on all who are weak and all who are marginalized, began to transform cultures all over the world. None of this had previously existed until Jesus showed up, not even until the Geneva Convention. And even there, what happens, you you have an organization that has begun to alleviate human suffering. You know what they chose as their symbol? This right here. What's it called? Red Cross. Exactly. It becomes known as. Salvation Army, World Vision, YMCA, a hospital called St. Jude, Good Samaritan, St. Anthony's, Marion, all these things, whether you know it or not, it's because of the movement of Jesus. Philosopher Mark Nelson says, if you ask what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion, I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lonely and for practical welfare of the lonely, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages, for those who will never be able to repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. It's amazing. Jesus' movement changed education as we know it as well. And look, so you can go past that. You don't have to stay there. 
No, thank you. Is it stuck? Is it stuck? See? That's what I did. See, you do it again. That's what I said I was going to do that, didn't I? Oh, well. I, I don't make slideshows. I just added the red cross in there, and now I just jacked it all up. I'm really sorry. Okay, so Jesus' movement. <laughs> this will be great on the video. People are like, what? What's going on? Jesus' movement shaped uh, education as we know it. Luke 10, 27. Uh, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And so these followers started to ask, well, how do we love God with all of our mind? Now, when, when Rome collapsed, the barbarians and the Huns and the Goths and the Visigoths, they destroyed Roman civilization. There were no books as you know them back then, no flash drives, no hard drives to store all these things on. They didn't have a printing press. There were scrolls, and these decayed quickly and easily. Now, you ever ask yourself the question, why is it we still have so many texts of all these great Roman and Greek thinkers? Why do we have those? There's a variety of reasons, but the main one is about the 4th century. Some of Jesus' followers started entering into communities, and for centuries, they were the ones who copied down and acquired and preserved and transmitted all of this knowledge. Christians have never been opposed to knowledge. They've always been for knowledge. In the book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, it shows how for centuries, members of these communities that followed Jesus copied down ancient manuscripts, not just the New Testament text. The single greatest preserver of even pagan classical documents were followers of Jesus who were convinced that all truth is God's truth. And so they copied these things down and kept literature alive. And then, because of that loving God with all of their mind, they began to build schools to educate young people. And the church began to build universities universities. The first one was in Paris in the 12th century. In the 13th century, they, they opened Oxford and Cambridge. The universities in Rome and Naples and Vienna and Heidelberg, these were all begun by followers of Jesus so people could love God with all of their mind. And they called them universities because of the idea that in the beginning, God created all things. There is creator. We are creation. And all of creation is in this universe that God made over here. So they called them universities. They believe that God is supremely rational. And because he is rational that means one plus one equals two and two plus two equals four and you can start looking at the world and figure things out to the glory of god they didn't make multiversities or diversities it wasn't random chaos they made universities to study the universe the one universe that god made alfred north whitehead one of the dominant thinkers of the 20th century he says this or he asked this he says what is it that made possible for science to emerge in the human race? This is his answer. He says, it's the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. Because if you believe that creation was made by a rational God, it will lead to certain assumptions of 1 plus 1 equals 2, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Things are rational in in how they work. It's not just a random accident. They would think about statements like when Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and and in him all things hold together. Dinesh D'Souza says, Science as an organized, sustained enterprise arose only once in human history in Europe in the civilization called Christendom. Now, how fundamental is Jesus to the rise of education in America? How fundamental is he there? See if you can guess what college handbook this used to come from. Used to come from. Ready? Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well. The main end of his life and his studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, 3, and therefore to lay Christ as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Any guess? Harvard University. Now, is it a little bit different today? Yeah, just, just a little bit. Yale, William and Mary, Princeton, Brown, all but one school started before the American Revolution was started and to serve Jesus. 92% of the first 138 colleges and universities founded in America were founded by followers of this uneducated, itinerant, never wrote a book carpenter named 
Jesus. It is simply amazing. The alphabet of the Slavic people is called Cyrillic. It's not just a band, okay? It's actually named for this guy named St. Cyril. He was a missionary uh, to the Slavs and discovered they had no written alphabet. So he creates one for them. This is many hundreds and hundreds of, of years ago, by the way. But he did it so they would be able to read this book about Jesus in their own language. Nation after nation, culture after culture, Christian missionaries have gone out into the world. And they have found languages that have not been committed to writing. So they devoted their lives to the task. In many cases, the first efforts of scientific study of language was done by Christian missionaries. They completed and compiled the first dictionaries. They wrote the first grammars. They developed the first alphabets. The first important proper name written in most languages around the world is the name of Jesus. Today, the Gospels are translated into more than 2,200 different languages. No other book is translated into one-fifth that many. And as I'm looking, trying to research, I would say almost probably one-tenth that many. See, without Jesus, there is no Dante, whose divine comedy was the primary shaper of modern Italian. Without Jesus, there's no Martin Luther, whose German Bible became the primary shaper of the German language. Without Jesus, there's no King James Bible, which in the end becomes the most important source and shaping for the English language. Without Jesus, there's no Bach, who signed all of his works to the glory of God. In fact, modern music notation, when you look at dots on a paper like that, it was invented in the Middle Ages by monks who wanted to spread music to glorify God and that would honor Jesus from one place to another. And so they developed this way of noting and spreading music. It's amazing. Imagine no Sistine Chapel, no Da Vinci's Last Supper, no Pieta. None of that. You can go on and on like this. There's simply been no transcendent vision of reality, no cosmic story to make sense of the earth that has gripped the artistic imagination, the battle of life and death, good and evil, love and hate, like the vision of Jesus. Jesus' words changed political theory. Jesus once said in Mark 12, 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. In John 18, 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. So take religion out of it for a moment. That is still one of the most influential statements in political history. Up till this moment, it was assumed that the state of the empire could compel worship because tribal gods were part of what would hold any society together, any nation together. Edward Gibbon, in the book The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, writes this, The gods which prevail in the Roman world were considered by all the people as equally true, the Roman philosophers as equally false, and by the politicians as equally useful. (laughs) See, but Jesus' followers came along and they realized they were called to be in the world but not of the world. They were called to serve the places they were, but their ultimate allegiance was always to Jesus. Church father Diognetus wrote this, They dwell in their own country, but only as sojourners. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them, and every fatherland is a foreign country. Romans had the pantheon. They would take all their conquered gods, they would put them in the middle of this pantheon. They said, these are the gods of Rome. But Christian followers they said, we're not going to just put Jesus in there. No way. There is only one God, Jesus. And you have this idea that develops from Augustine to Martin Luther to John Locke, and they develop this idea of limited government, that the state operates in a restricted sphere, and that one day even kings will answer to a higher power, and the state should not run religion. Now, religion can be involved in the state, but the state does not run religion. Even the word secular, it was created by Christians to help you to understand the difference in how these things would work. I mean, Christianity almost seems its best when it has no political power at all. And this is, again, why element. We are always pushing the name of Jesus. We're not really political at all. We're just always pushing Jesus. And this idea of limited government developed in a culture where people learned to live and work out what it meant to follow a, a king whose kingdom was not of this world. 
Jesus changed how we think about human rights and worth and dignity. Founding document, United States of America, says, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and have been endowed by the Creator with certain rights. Where did that idea come from? How do all men hold that? Because it hasn't been self-evident for a really long time in human history. Right? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't to the Goths, to the Visigoths, to the Huns, or the Nazis. It's not part of the caste system in India. It wasn't part of any socialist or communistic system that's ever been out there. It all comes from this idea that God has made people in his image, and therefore they have dignity, value, and worth, and they are loved by God. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thomas Cahill writes, this is the first expression of egalitarianism in human history, that every human being has equal dignity and worth. This is why reform movements like the abolition of slavery were overwhelmingly led by followers of Jesus. And I know, guys, look, I know individuals and nations, including nations who call themselves Christians, have fallen and do fall short of this. But Jesus was the one who uniquely taught these things. He teaches love of enemies. Turn the other cheek. Go with them two miles. Love your enemy and bless those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The idea that we're supposed to love our enemies, that is not a natural human idea. natural human idea is we're supposed to crush our enemies. And Jesus didn't just talk about this. Jesus lived this. On the cross of his executioners in Luke 23, 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he creates this community of people that begin to live and love this way. We are told by ancient writers about Christian martyrs who died for this way of life. When you hear the word martyr, you think of like somebody who died. You know what the word martyr meant in the scriptures? Witness. You are a witness for who Jesus was. Roman historian Tacitus said of Christians, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to flames. Nero would wrap them up in pitch and then light them on fire in his yard so he could have light for his parties. He'd also do this for gladiatorial games. And these people's response to this, all this is happening, it wasn't to dream of revenge. It wasn't to start an army. What they did was they loved Nero and they loved Rome. The reality of the love for enemies was actually so powerful, for example, that you read about this Roman military commander. His name is Morris. Morris was just slaughtering Christian after Christian after Christian. Kind of like if you watch The Walking Dead. It's like just zombie after zombie after zombie. They're not fighting back. He's just killing them all. And it gets to the point where he's, just, he's like, I can't kill any more Christians. Like, I can't do it. And so he stops doing it. You know what happens to him? He was executed for that decision. It's kind of crazy. But what happens from that story, Morris inspires this writer named Leo Tolstoy to look and check out the person of Jesus. Leo Tolstoy becomes a Christian. He writes a book called Resurrection. This book, Resurrection, is banned in Russia, but it inspires a British-trained lawyer to start a Tolstoyan community in South Africa. The last full letter Leo Tolstoy ever wrote was to this British-trained lawyer. And it was about doing this self-sacrificing, enemy-loving love of Jesus. You know what that lawyer's name was? Mahatma Gandhi. You cannot even understand the movement of Gandhi apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Gandhi didn't become a Christian, you know, but, but again, there's no way to even understand even his movement apart from the person of Jesus Christ. The most famous speech of the 20th century was given by a preacher named Martin Luther King, and the speech is called, I Have a Dream. I'll tell you something really cool about this speech. Martin Luther King is speaking from a, pre- a prepared text on, on the date he gives it. And so at one point, he throws in this quote from Amos 5.24, and he says this, We will not be satisfied till justice rolls like waters. We will not be satisfied till righteousness rolls like a mighty stream. And the crowd at this point, they just can't keep quiet. They're like, oh, they get really excited. They applaud. They start to yell back, tell it, tell it, preach it. Amen, Martin, keep going. It's like a church crowd, not an element church crowd, but, you know, <laughs> but, but, but a church crowd. You know, because when you guys holler back, you just heckle. 
And it's, and it's not cool. Okay. Now, amen. Now, at this point, Martin Luther, he can't, he can't go back to his prepared text. If you watch the video of this sometime, it's really amazing what happens when he gets to that quote from Amos. And then this applause, and then he stops. And Mahalia Jackson pipes up like she's actually in a choir. And she says, tell him about the dream, Martin. And so he starts to sing to a nation, kind of like a prophet would do. And he says this, uh, as he says, I have a dream. And he goes from Amos uh, 5 to Isaiah 40. He says, I have a dream that one day all children of God will be judged no longer by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. I have a dream. I have a dream today that every valley will be raised up and every mountain will be brought down, that the glory of God will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. I have a dream. That is Jesus' dream. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we try to even remove a speech like Martin Luther King's from the person of Jesus. You don't get a Martin Luther King without the person of Jesus Christ. That is Jesus at work. This all comes from Jesus. So who is Jesus? I love how one writer put it. He said this, He is the hinge of history. He is the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. He is the greatest teacher who ever lived. He is the greatest mind that ever thought. He sparked the greatest movement that has ever spread. He offered the greatest gift that has ever been given. He alone mastered life. He alone conquered death. He alone overcame sin. He alone grows more present with each passing year. He is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. That is who he is. And that is what we're going to look at throughout this series on Jesus. That's kind of like my whole little intro for what everybody else is, is going to do. I'm going to expand on some of those things as we go through this series. But you must understand that everything comes back to Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. And our hope at Element is that you would place your trust in who he is. Because there has never been anybody like him. There will never be anybody like him. Because he is the God who made this world and he made you. And this is why we come to communion every week, because not only did he make you, he provided a way to redeem you from all the sin and all the garbage you have ever done in your life. That's why you take that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us, and you break it. And you dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I as a people so we can be redeemed. We can live and love and follow this person of Jesus that he works in and through us. And the world gets changes in more amazing ways than it ever has been because of the person of Jesus. Jesus is simply amazing. Now, the band's going to come up. Haley, could you run and grab them for me? The band's going to come up. And, and as they do, we invite you guys you know, to take communion. Uh, we invite you guys. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you need prayer for anything, you know, we would invite you guys to go back there, that you would uh, be able to uh, pray with them, to talk with them about all of that stuff. Uh, maybe you've been looking at this thing, man, I never thought of Jesus like that. You know, maybe you want to have some more questions you want to ask. Maybe those kind of things. Well, they would, they would love to pray with you. They'd love to pray with you. I called you guys up like a while ago. You can come on up. <laughs> Every look at him. Every look at him. <laughs> uh, there is offering boxes on the side of all in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. And there's some food and stuff in the back, and we do invite you guys to grab something to eat. Uh, and when you do that, just, just get to know some other people around you. Maybe talk about the greatness of, of who he is. I mean, you know, who knows? You know, donut holes came about because of the person of Jesus. Could be true because they're amazing. Everything amazing comes from Jesus. It's great. I mean, and this is the idea that, that, we, that we walk through life and we understand the goodness and the grace and the compassion that, that surrounds us all comes from the person of Christ. And we must be a people who lift up and worship him as central to all things first. And when that happens, the world does change because of Jesus. And so our hope, by the end of this series, if you haven't already, that you put your faith and your hope in the person of Jesus Christ because there is none other like him. And he is the savior of all of us. Let's pray. Father, this morning.
I ask that you would teach us to be a people who love and honor and glorify and serve you. That our lives would be those who change in light of the enormity and the scope of all that we realize that you have done and all that you continue to do. Father, there are probably millions and millions of things going on in our world even today that we are not even aware of that are places of great grace and compassion that all stem from you. And so I ask that you would take us as a people and as we embrace and understand what you have done in the course of history and what you continue to do, that we would honor the movement of you. That we would honor it with our lives and by the things that we do. And that we would offer mercy and grace and compassion to those around us. Because you are good. And so today I ask that we would be people who are overwhelmed by all that you've done. And that we would take a step back and bow ourselves to the sheer enormity of all that you have been doing. And in so doing, we would live lives that lift you up in all things and glorify you. Because you are everything. Everything. It all comes down to Jesus' name. Everything. And so this morning, we worship you. And we ask all of these things in your son's good name. Amen.